This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. Rakesh Lakhani is one of the most emotionally intelligent and generous thought leaders in our sector today. He was the very first guest we hosted when we launched this podcast, so he couldn't be more perfect to celebrate our 51st episode with. Rakesh believes that we are all responsible for each other's success. He is the founder of Radiance Philanthropy, supporting social impact organizations and leaders to align their actions with their values in order to build stronger cultures based on truth and trust. He has over 15 years experience in the social impact sector, including serving as executive director at Future Possibilities for Kids, which is a community-based organization serving children. He was also the director campaign at United Way York Region, leading an $8 million annual fundraising campaign. Rakesh is a certified fundraising executive, sits on the Global Council for the Community-Centric Fundraising Movement, and has volunteered with numerous causes and boards. He enjoys spending time with his family, including his three beautiful children, camping, bike riding, cooking, and playing the drums. In this thoughtful and intimate conversation, Rakesh and I cover a lot of territory. He openly shares why and how he chose to gracefully transition away from his executive director role at Future Possibility for Kids and his realization that he was chronically burnt out and how he took the time and space to recover. We also talk about the need for our sector to treat our staff and volunteers better and how he is now using his voice to elevate important conversations during these times of great change in our sector and in our world. What I really appreciate about Rakesh is how he tackles tough topics with such thoughtfulness and kindness. So please join me in welcoming my friend Rakesh Lakhani back into the hub. Rakesh, welcome to the hub. Thanks for having me back, Kimberly. You were our very first guest on our very first episode in the middle of the pandemic. We launched this podcast and we talked about resilience. And somebody might think that I would go back and listen to the very first episode of the very first season, but I actually did not do that because I'm sure that I don't want to hear it. But I I think listeners would probably benefit from a lot of time with you. So so they should go back and listen to that episode. And uh and welcome. Thank you for being back. Yeah, but a lot has a lot has changed since we did that podcast. Even the term resilience itself and the connotations oh, and yeah. meaning around it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to get started just by saying, telling the world, we've known each other for a long time. And we've presented, and I try not to have this, the Friends and Family podcast, but I adored time with you. And I've been noticing... Um, a shift in 
your voice and your work and the things that you've been doing. And, and I, I'm grateful to you for coming to share a little bit about your journey as a hope to inspire others along their journey. Before we get into all that, can you just tell me your origin story for people who don't know you? How did you get into this sector? Yeah, I, I think I'm of that. Um, well, first of all, again, it is a pleasure to be back. So thank you, Kimberly. And we have known each other a while. So it's great to have these chats uh, in a bit more of a public space. And if they can be of value to folks and you feel like you're not alone and that's if, if there's something that can be you know gained from that, then that's wonderful. Um, so for me, I'm one of the, of the school that just kind of fell into it. It wasn't very professionalized space at that point. Uh, I just knew that, you know, for me, increasing shareholder value was just not something that that spoke to me. And uh, when you realize how many things are going on in this world, and you can actually spend a lot of your time in the daytime uh, to actually be working towards, um, you know, common good, then that was something that was really, really appealing to me. So I started out, you know, in, the, in, a, in sort of smaller roles, and then um, started fundraising uh, at United Way, and I uh, really, you know, enjoyed that aspect of it, but also the community uh, mobilization components. So even though I was in fundraising, that was a piece that really um, spoke to me uh, in terms of what are the conversations we need to have to, in the bigger picture, to stop these problems before they start. Mm -hmm. And so like affordable housing and homelessness and food food security, all those pieces. Um, and then, uh, then I moved on to becoming an ED of a small community-based organization called Future Possibilities for Kids for the last uh, eight years or so. And uh, and so then the rest is history. I'm pretty much going to stay as some, somewhere in this space for the rest of my career, that's for sure. So you love working in the charitable sector, and you were an executive director for eight years, but you did something, I think, really remarkable um, this year. You you decided to leave your job. Um, you felt like, well, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to get to that realization. Yeah, definitely a year of, a year of change. I think uh, the funny thing is, as I sort of went down this path, I realized how many others were either considering it or were already doing it. So basically, I knew for, for one thing for me, I always knew that being in an organization and being the ED, the shelf life of that a role like that to me is five to 10 years that you need enough time to get things going. But if you stay too long, you know, your ideas, your energy get a little bit stale, you need new energy in there. So I always knew this would be within that scope. But I did something that is a little bit unusual in that I didn't have another job directly lined up. Um, you know, a lot of, oftentimes, why do you leave a role? You have another job, you get fired, or you have some kind of crisis in your life that makes you leave. Mm -hmm. And I kind of did secret option four, where I'm like, I'm going to give a few months notice, I want to have my my brain and heart fully in this transition and give them a chance uh, to really find the right next person, which they have. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm going to take some time to figure it out. And I fully appreciate for anyone listening, what a complete luxury that is to be able to be in a position to do that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after I left that I realized, uh, and this is coming with a place that had an amazing board. I had lots of leeway, great staff, great cause, lots of flexibility. So I, it was not like, oh, I was in a you know toxic environment. We were in one of the best, best workplaces I've ever been in. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't realize till after. It. You loved it there. You loved it there. Hundred percent. We built something very, very special. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what was it that you realized? I think. Well, I knew when when my I knew that I didn't want to get to a place where my heart wasn't in it. So that was when I started to say, you know what? I feel if I stick around longer, that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think this the whole time, probably about the last two years or so, with everything going on personally uh, and, and pressures from in the, within the organization that I didn't realize. And that's the insidious nature of burnout is that I was burnt out. Mm 
I didn't realize how bad it was until I stopped. So right, I think that right. was a precipitating factor. Just, you know, I have to stop now because if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to me. So uh, I think there was a lot, a lot of things culminating to, to make that, that decision. And I'm really you know glad that I did, but you know, obviously love the organization, but after eight years, I felt like, you know, I've done what I can do, but I also don't feel like I have anything left to give. <laughs> right. So right, that, that right. was, that was, the, that was it. You had nothing left to give. I love the phrase exiting with grace because you did, you gave everybody a nice long leeway. You, did you participate in the search for your um, successor? I helped to shape the process because we were doing a lot of work around, you know, uh, equity in our processes and things. So I wanted to make sure those were represented, especially, you know, in, in, in lining up with the ED search, but I did not actually take part in the, in the physical process that I wanted to stay out of, which is right. the right thing for me. That sounds appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So burnout has become a little bit of a, um, jargony, I think, because mm-hmm. we're talking about it so much, but I wonder if you, if you would share what burnout was for you, what was your experience? Hmm. I mean, people experience it differently. Um, it, it's a, it's not being able to just bring yourself fully and you can't even explain why your, your, your brain function in terms of, you know, um, planning in terms of executing, in terms of having conversations, meetings, you just, you just can't be there. The tank is beyond empty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that was to me, the experience, like, I just can't give my best. But then the constant pressure that, you know, in our, uh, in in society, this is just, this is a societal thing where you have to keep producing, you have to keep going because you need to put food on the table, you have to perform, you have to produce. So I mean, that's what kind of makes it hard to sort of stop. But it wasn't until after I stopped and I just like for a month, I was just completely just you know out of it. Yeah. That's when I really realized how how bad it had gotten. So I was probably faking it really well that hey, like I'm I'm doing stuff and we're we're making things happen, but. You know, I wasn't I wasn't fully fully present that to me that's that was the main experience of it mm-hmm. but then when you stopped you you had a month where you just still you probably had plans what were you going to do with that month <laughs> oh trust me I had all these plans I thought hey by September I'm gonna have my whole life worked out I really did want to spend some time with the kids because they didn't get uh you know they didn't get the uh the me that I wanted like I was like again a feeling like almost like a shell of yourself. So I was like, we're going to spend some time together. Um, we're going to hang out. I'm going to start re- resetting and rethinking, um, you know, what it is I want to do next. So that was the original plan. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, I probably didn't do very much. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what was actually needed uh, yeah. in terms of healing. Yeah, um, I would call that there was a lot of things going on personally, professionally, having three young kids in school during this pandemic, too. So it wasn't just the job, it was all the factors weighing in together. So it was a pause was was needed 100 <laughs> percent um there's so many directions i want to go with this for cash but i just i'm thinking back to a post that you made on linkedin about gender and how your experience is different because of your gender and that women might experience something a little bit do you remember that post Oh, that was talking about um, uh, parental and maternity leaves. Mm. Yes, I do remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that's been a big thing during this pandemic too. It's affected women and mothers in particular very differently than it has everybody else in terms of who is exiting the workforce, um, who's bearing the brunt of some of the uh, the fallout of this in terms of even just, let's say, you know, emotional 
weight carrying of, let's say, children, because children are going through a lot of stuff. Where does all this stuff go? So it really did open my eyes too about like, why are some of us able to do the things we're able to do? And oftentimes it's the invisible labor of a lot of folks, including women uh, within the household, that is just not recognized, noticed, definitely not compensated, <laughs> that allows some of these these uh, these things to happen. Yeah. So when you, I mean, you're a very busy father of three very young children and a very involved father and an executive director. That was just a shell, a completely empty shell of a human who was faking his way through the world. And then you took this pause. What do you think we could do for anyone who is listening, who is unable to take a pause? How can we take care of ourselves and each other? What needs to shift and change there? That's a very, very good question. Um, I think that the solutions are multifold, that there are individual things we can do. And, you know, you can set boundaries for yourself. You can draw lines. And people have been doing a lot more of that lately. These terms that are coming out, quiet quitting, whatever you want to call it. It's like, I'm going to just work to rule. And I mean, I don't blame that people for doing it. That's my understanding of it anyways. It's like, if you're not going to pay me for pay it properly and you expect me to do all this extra stuff, then I'm just going to sort of do what's expected of me. And that's it, which I don't, I think that uh, on an individual level, yeah, we have to stay in touch with our own selves and say, is this, is this working for me? Is this healthy? And the issue is that you can't always just leave your job, um, even if it's not serving you. And that's something that I think we have to be very, very mindful of is, is what are the, what are the precipitating factors that make workplaces the way they are that basically drain so much energy from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole, that's a whole other podcast episode about, you know, workplace design and, and um, you know, uh, capitalism connections and things like that. But um, then the next level is kind of organizational. And that depends on the leaders and the management. What are we doing to create environments that don't drain energy from folks that fulfill them, that reward them, that are employee focused first? That's not most workplaces. Mm-hmm. They're like, let's get the most out of you for the cheapest price possible. Right even charities, nonprofits. And that's the part that I think we are talking about using my voice earlier, yeah. um, seeing this and trying to make changes at our own workplace and just recognizing how much work has to be done. It bothers me a little bit more or a lot more when it's orgs that are claiming to be about, you know, um, social justice and, and equity and all these places and that all these pieces mm-hmm. and are not living it within their own org. Right. So there's an organizational component, but in the end, if it's not a societal shift, that we all have to lobby for, we all have to fight for, we're not going to see that change on a mass scale that's going to reshift. Now, I don't even want to call it work-life balance anymore. First of all, if it is going to be called anything, it should be life-work balance, put life first. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that has to change for us to not have workplaces that do this because I was in a particularly great workplace and even then. And it's you know, still happening to you. Yeah. And it still happens. So there's obviously something deeper at, deeper at play here. Yeah, I wonder what it is. What it is, but you spoke, you spoke about your voice and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, And I mean, you, you used to be the nicest guy and you're still a nice guy. (laughs) 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 You know, I would say maybe the peacekeeper. And I've just noticed over the last several months, your voice is becoming a little edgier. Would you, do you think, is that accurate? Is that okay to say? Yeah, I think I think um, so. Just for the record, here I'm still a nice guy, uh, but nice guy, I think so. <laughs> I think there's 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 a distinct difference between being you know um, being polite and being kind. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know for a long time, many folks felt like they couldn't say some of these things uh, because of their identity. I know myself; I've been you know in a 
culture where you know yeah immigrant parents here it's like keep your head down don't rock the boat play by the rules and you you could maybe make it somewhere and then you're given these opportunities but at what cost right so are you using the your position and where you're at to kind of do something different or are you upholding some of the the garbage out there and I and I realized that for me that a because of the nature of just corporatized you know like the way that they're structured, charities, nonprofits, social good organizations, in a lot of cases, they're upholding a lot of the problems. And I don't want to be part of that. And and B, the second part of this is that in the last couple of years, with everything going on with the pandemic, with the uh, real focus on racial equity, that there's been a window that's open here where I do feel safer. So it's not only have I gone through my own learning journey and my actual, my my values and my learning have also you know changed, but I feel like I can say something more. And I feel like now, not only can I, but it's a duty to say something. And so not everyone feels comfortable doing that. And I completely understand there's penalties. There's, um, you know, you get shut down, you get pushed out of organizations or you get, you know, uh, ostracized, you lose people that are in your network. And that has happened to me for sure. Um, But I do feel like I don't, it's like, as I put myself out there, my real self and my evolving self, we're all evolving. I'm like, this is who I am. And so when I put stuff out there on social media, it's not because I'm an expert in anything that I put out there. It's, that's literally chronicling my learning journey. And if that means that you, I'm putting myself out there, out there and you don't like that anymore, you're like, well, hey, you're used to, like you said, you used to be this guy who was always about positivity and keeping the peace. And I think that was a lot of identity, personal identity work that I've been doing. It's like, well, what, what, is, what is to be gained by playing that role? And also, who are you actually protecting? But I think in playing that role in many cases, um, I've actually not stood up for in, in times when I probably should have. And that, I don't want to be that anymore. So I think there's been a lot of of, of evolutions and, and personal journey work that's going on there. So I'm still a nice guy. And also there's a lot of stuff that I will no longer be doing or putting up with um, because that's just not what I want to do anymore. That's a such a powerful position for you to be in, actually. I, I hope that others can find ways to to channel the voice and and also be in a in a space in a position where you're you're not it's not used against you because okay. uh, that's often often what happens in in most cases like you say what's on your mind and oh that sounds good and then all of a sudden you're out of a job you're out of a friend you're out of, you're off of a board or whatever the case would be and I'm like you know I'm going to let folks self select that but I, I recognize that I'm in a position where I'm even able to do that in a, in a lot of cases that folks can't so right. I'm like you know I'm gonna I'm going to um, take any <laughs> influence power platform that I have and mm-hmm. use it to raise awareness about these things. And um, hopefully people understand um, and we're willing to have a conversation because I'm never I'm not going to shut down a conversation. We're going to talk. Let's talk for sure. You don't agree with me. That's all good. That's all good. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So we talked about who you were when you were burnt out and how you spent your summer. Who are you now? Well, I'm still for people that know me. I'm still I'm still a teddy bear. I'm still Rakesh, but um, I'm looking to find ways to make it um, easier for people that are ho- wanting to do good to do good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that we have a lot of a lot of things that get in the way of us doing our best work. Whether it's the culture of an organization, whether it's a a leader who's just not getting it or not hearing it, so they're not getting the truth because they're just they're just not. Um, creating an environment where they're going to get that truth. And also, you know, was what are we what are we setting up in a policy and structure level 
for charities, nonprofits, and there's many places to do good. It's not just charities and nonprofits. But what are we setting up so that they can people can do their do good work? Mm-hmm. And we're not blocking that from happening. So I want to be part of the change that is that is creating spaces that people can do their work better, where we talk about diversity. It's no longer a diversity. Because mm-hmm. if you have an environment where you bring in diverse folks and you don't set them up for success, you don't protect them from all the uh, the bullshit, basically. Well, then- that is absolutely um, true, isn't it? That that bringing in diverse perspectives and and backgrounds uh, doesn't serve the organization at all if if they're expected to fit into this little box that your organization has had for forty years. So. Mm-hmm going upstream and figuring out where the gaps are in your organization is essential to that work. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, absolutely. We have to look at why, you know, why aren't we attracting folks from different backgrounds that maybe are uh, more, you know, aligned with the communities that we're serving? Why does the nonprofit and charity sector look and feel a certain way? And we know why that is if we go back, you know, far enough as to the origins of it. And it's not to say that people don't have a place here. It's just, um, we haven't created environments where everybody feels truly welcomed, heard, validated, protected. And we see a lot of folks then just leaving. And then we, we question, well, we tried this diversity thing. It didn't work as well. No, it's because you brought in one person onto a board or one person onto your staff, expect them to be the voice of every single non-dominant culture, you know, person. Mm-hmm. And then, and didn't protect them when they were starting to get backlash from, from, from speaking out and, and sharing what's, what's wrong within the organization. They just got pushed out or didn't feel welcome. And then, status quo continues. So I think that's such an important piece in all this is what does that environment look like? And I, you know, this is this is a bit harsh, but I think a lot of it is going to be some of the current leaders moving on. Yeah. I mean, they've served their 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 time, they've had the opportunity to do great things. And I think we need to see a major shift in that leadership in some of the biggest charities and nonprofits in Canada and in North America, because it's time for new energy, especially if we're not going to be considering some of these factors maybe publicly we're saying things we're putting out statements we're we're saying we're good for it we're bringing in trainers but when it comes time to actually you know challenge those behaviors of a staff member brings to you says i've experienced racism at this workplace or i've experienced ableism at this workplace what are we actually doing with that information and if if it's if it's if it's all for show then that's you know that's that's very problematic. In fact, it's more harmful because then people are coming in expecting that you say you're about this. I thought you would be, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of po- folks are now skittish when when organizations are talking about this stuff because of their actual experience within the orgs. So we've got we've got a lot of work to. I mean, it's possible. So let me quickly just like um take shift the energy and say, well, do I believe this is possible? I I, I have to have hope, or I don't know where I would go from here. That we can make change. It might take longer than I would like, or that we would all like. But the key thing is that it's going to happen. And I do believe that we can. We see a lot of people and orgs pushing for better. And I, that's the side I want to be on. That's the, the part of this journey I want to be on is pushing for better. Hmm. Um, the perspective that you bring around the hypocrisy between what an organization says and how it in reality, how it treats its people is a really interesting one for me that I hadn't spent a lot of time I mean, now that you say it, I could see it. Absolutely. Uh, I just wonder what what are some examples of what it could take to crush the status quo, as you say. And one of them is for senior leadership to know when it's time for them to go. Yeah, there's a lot of layers here, though. Just like anything else, it's, it's complicated, complex. It's not going to be one thing that will will 
make this better. Um, like I was saying before, it is going to take shifts in the individual, organizational, and societal level. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's going to take a coordinated effort. I think I see a lot of folks, you know, um, making changes kind of in different um, uh, spaces. And it's like if we all band together and we all have a common goal of, of let's say, let's say a better workplace environment for uh, to to do good work. Mm-hmm. I think we can make it happen. But some, so so like someone, for example, like Alison Venditti from you know started Moms at Work. That is a whole you know movement around um, creating better conditions for working parents, mostly working mothers, but working parents in general. And they're doing a lot of advocacy work. They have a really great job board and they're doing so many cool projects and Allison in particular. And I think that's the kind of person I'm like, I want to talk to you. I want to see what, what are you doing? What, where, where can I join existing movements? You don't always have to start your own thing either, but right. there's a lot of folks fighting hard and fighting a lot of battles to make this space better. And, and you're, you're seeing them getting traction and you're hearing more about them. Or, you know, my my professional <laughs> crush on Food Share Toronto, and they're paying people to do inter- job interviews there. And we might think these things are out of reach, but they don't always even have to cost a lot of money. It's just taking that time to think if workplaces and leaders think, what can I do that will be create a better environment for the community and for our own team members? They're asking that at every turn. I think we'll see some changes happen, but it does have to, st- unfortunately, those changes always happen on the edge, on the fringes. And then eventually our, our people push hard enough and, and, and the mainstream organizations, the big orgs start to see, no, we got to come along for the ride. I wish that they could lead the charge, but I understand there, some of them are big, big institutions and it takes time for change to happen. When I say, I understand, I'm not letting them off the hook, by the way, right? I still think they should be at the front of the line saying we're this massive org, this massive institution. We're going to actually be the first to do these things. I want to see that happen. But I know why it doesn't. So I'm like, we're going to continue to keep pushing and going to find those folks that are doing work maybe under the radar and say, how can we get them them a main platform? Because they're they're that's where the change is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I have to talk to Moms at Work and Food Share Toronto for first of all, I made that note because it sounds like there are some concrete examples of choices that they have made to improve workplace culture and also. Um, paying people to come in for job interviews is something folks have said for a long time, but I have never heard of an example of it actually happening. Yeah. So they just decided one day, you know what, we're going to do it. And I know you can't do everything at once. And I know as an ED, I understand like the financial components of it. I don't think anyone's out there saying you need to make all these changes all at once. Right. I think what they want to hear is communication around it. They want to say, okay, what are you doing around pay transparency? What are you doing around this? And what is your plan? And then you take that plan and you go to funders and you say, this is how much it costs to actually run the organization. This is how much the cost of living increase was. And you're giving us the same amount every year to do the same or more work. Mm -hmm. And that's not sustainable. And Mm -hmm. so I think these conversations have to make their way into those funding arenas too, because with, without, you know, funding support for this, it won't happen. But my, what I've seen, you know, within future possibilities for kids, where we made a lot of these changes, food share, Toronto, these environments where, they're actually seeing that funders are coming along for the ride. If you have those honest conversations, not all of them, but yeah. you can find the ones that will. But they, you know, at, at Future, when inflation has been like 7% or, so, you know, 6 to 7%, and we're giving, you know, 2 to 3% cost of living increases, um, you know, w- what does that what does that mean for folks? They're actually getting they're getting paid less. And then again, Future Toronto was like, we're just going to bump up salaries by the amount of inflation. 
so that our team members aren't earning less by being here. And so I know there's a financial component to this, but I think if I think I've heard that used too often almost as an excuse because there's no incentive for the employer to go out and 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 raise that additional money because they're like, well, what am I doing this for if it's for the employees? Is this going to attract new funding? Is this going to it's like no, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So when you ask what it's going to take to make the change, I think we're really going to get to have to get to a place where we're EDs are having conversations with boards saying, we're going to increase our budget this year by X amount, and we're not going to increase our program outcomes directly, but we are going to increase our equity outcomes because we're properly you know, paying staff. We're giving them what they need to do some of this heavy, hard work. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it too, isn't it? I think a lot of people aren't sure what to do. They just know that what they're doing now isn't is a no longer quote best practice, mm-hmm. but not sure what new best practices are. And it's really the um, folks uh, on the fringe who are doing all of this hard work to amplify these issues and to help provide solutions that uh, need to be heard and need to be listened to. And that's must be exhausting for them. I think folks that are doing this are, used to doing things that (laughs) people are not used to or doing things that people are going to say no to or turn down. Mm -hmm. That's why really, to me, I believe we need to look at those activists and the advocates and the communities, because if we're just listening to what's on the media, what's, you know, being spouted out by some of the biggest orgs or voices, we're going to miss that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, to me, that's, I'm making a conscious effort. And then whenever I say anything on a podcast or in a you know, posts on LinkedIn. I think people have to recognize I'm I'm not perfect. I was doing some of these same things before. Yeah. I was I was part of the problem, and I still am. We're all. I think that's another thing. We really gotta, as a sector, as individuals, be like I can be part of the problem. I can I can recognize that I'm part of the problem, and that's not going to mean that I'm a bad person. It's just like wow, I'm I've been a part of the sector that's up, and and I've been up, upholding these these same things. Mm-hmm. So, it is it would be exhausting for folks, and I think. At the same time, when we talk, even the term best practices, I think we need to really rethink even just that terminology, because usually that's the types of things that are, are kind of held up and say, well, we we can't change those, let's say, fundraising practices, because these are the best practices that have worked for us for decades. It's like, But what we don't factor into that equation is the harm that they're causing. Yeah. So while you might be able to technically run your organization at a certain budget level, you have to look at, well, how much, what does it mean when we're paying somebody $10,000 below a living wage? They might work for that amount, but is that okay for us to do that? Yeah. And that's not a decision that people might sort of default to. So I, I think it's it really is going to be a lot of soul searching <laughs> for individuals and leaders to say, how can we make some of these, these changes? Now, I understand also the piece around, we don't know what to do, because there is not a linear playbook for some of this stuff. It's not like you do this steps one to 10, and you will now be an organization that's kind of, you know, a uh, uh, completed this journey. It's not that simple. I think that's what people struggle with. But if your mindset is one where you're like, let's think about the employees first and all these decisions that we're making mm-hmm. when we're developing our budgets, when we're thinking about our HR practices, when we're thinking about our hiring practices. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of questions around why not give people the interview questions in advance? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? What are we doing other than trying to just say, you know, let's see who thinks, you know, quickly on their feet, quote unquote. But who are we leaving out when we do that? When we think about um, neurodiversity, when we think about, you know, who has 
the, who has the time and space to sort of prepare for some of these interviews in different ways. When we do that kind of thing, we have to really question why we've done it. And we had really, when we looked at FBK, we had no good reason why we weren't giving those questions in advance. Like, you know what? We're going to level the playing field. Everyone's going to get the questions in advance. They can prepare. And then we're going to really have some real great conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think it also shows the person that you're hiring, what kind of organization they're walking into. There's already a a belief that that, that management and, and those in power are holding information back. So if you started off on the right foot and say, Here's the whole hiring process. We're going to tell you how, and upfront, how many interviews you're going through. I heard somebody the other day told me they, they were like doing something that was like seven interviews. Um, and I'm like, are you like the president of the United States? Are you like the head of Coca-Cola? And even okay. then, okay. you know the what I'm saying? The president of the United States doesn't need to go through seven interviews. They, don't go, they definitely don't go through. You know what I'm <laughs> they have a process. So it's like, why are, we, why are we doing this? And if we are doing that, why aren't we telling people in advance? So it's a real shift in the employer-employee dynamic and you're never going to get rid of the hierarchies of a, you know a, a corporate based structure or not let's try, I shouldn't say that I would like to see us rethink board you know governance and leadership models but in the meantime we can do things that will shift the dynamic and shift the power and the truth is not only is it going to get you better candidates who will now say hey I want to be part of that because I don't want to be part of applying for these jobs where they're keeping everything under wraps and I don't feel right. included right from the get-go yeah and also that's what the next generation of folks are looking for so like these changes are going to happen either way it's just a matter of when you tag yourself in pay transparency all this stuff it's just a matter of when you want to hop in on on that journey this is going to happen yeah because people are going to die and they're going to need to be replaced and and when you look at the folks who are coming up they're they are absolutely wanting to work differently in new ways um and and you probably have had this feeling i sort you know i had a fabulous career um, and have never once gotten a job from a job interview. So when you say let's help people, let's set them up for success in the interview and and stop trying to have this power play in a job interview, but really talk about whether you're the right person for this job. Do you feel lit up? Everybody who has been on an interview probably has walked out of an interview with that feeling of discord and yet still kind of hoping that they get called back, you know? And that's those are the little intuition um, signals that that maybe we all need to start paying a little bit more attention. Do I feel good in this place? The other thing that came to mind for me as you were talking is values, um, values of an organization. And one way to maybe dismantle this hypocrisy that we're talking about is when organizations do the work of really they articulate their values, they decide on their values, but many orgs forget the part of how do we operationalize these values? What would this value look like in this situation? Um, And that's really, I think, what you're talking about. If we value transparency, why are our board meetings private? Why can't people come and hang out and watch us operate this organization? Uh, Why, if, if we really do value transparency, why aren't we giving those job interview questions ahead of time to the candidate? Um, it's exciting. You know, you talk about the hope and I think imagining the possibilities of this work moving forward and organizations looking at all of the th- their activities through a critical lens and being curious about how to make it better um, does it, it that is exciting and hopeful. And it, it is. I think I think we we have to get excited about it. I mean, to me, the only other option is hey, it's never going to change. And then 
or we'll just won't even try. And I just, I can't, I can't accept that. So I, 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 it is, it is exciting because folks are blazing trails and setting examples. So it's not like there's not uh, opportunities out there or examples out there. There absolutely is. So for anyone who's listening to this and be like, oh, I'm feeling you know, overwhelmed with it. And I, I understand that too, because I also felt similar ways in many times we do. We, we think about these massive issues and without having some, some tangible understanding of what we can do to move forward, we are going to feel, feel like there's too much weight on us. So there are examples out there. There is things we can do. I think it to me, and this is this is one of the issues that I've been struggling with lately is I feel like the folks that most need to check and tame their ego are the least likely ones to actually go out and sort of seek support. Mm-hmm. So, and I've seen leaders like that where I've got it all figured out. And if I ever get to that stage, I really hope you'll give me a call and be like, you know, Rakesh, I'm getting this vibe that you feel you've got it all worked out. I'll be the first one to say I'm a work in progress. And so like, we need those folks to say, yeah, it's not about me. I'm running this org. I'm not, I don't want, I'm not here for the glory. I'm not here for, you know, putting myself out there and and being a hero. Cause I think when you have that kind of vibe, you're not going to be open to some of these changes that need to happen. And that's, that's hugely problematic. So I do think it is a call and I'm trying to put this call out. I might not reach the leaders who are most along that continuum and who are really just not listening to anybody at this point but there's a few folks who are out there in the front lines but they're open they're like i, I want to do better like let's have a conversation then because there there are ways we can do that and and i'm still figuring it out too so i there's lots of things that i don't know about but i'm trying to learn trying to listen keep my ears to the ground of who is leading the charge on making better workplace and saying let, let's put if we're really talking about diversity equity inclusion whatever you want to call it you know right now th- there isn't there isn't true change without like justice and also liberation as well. Like, what are we doing to make workplace not feel like we are just working ourselves to the bone all the time for something that we don't even, not even sure we care about anymore. And for, for way too little money, Mm -hmm. right? Like if we're talking about this, about diversity, equity, inclusion, you can't have it without saying we're going to start there within our own organizations. And I, I just think that you said the word hypocrisy, that really is the best word I would use when you're claiming to be about one thing, you know, when a mental health organization has the employees coming forward saying my mental health is broken working here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's particularly egregious. So absolutely. We can, we can do something about it though. hundred percent. It's um, it's two different conversations. I think that your point about, we can't talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion until we ask ourselves, are we taking care of our people, the people who are here now? Have we created an optimal working environment where mind, body, and soul can thrive and be successful? Yeah. That you know, that would be interesting work. That's what you should do next. Audits, workplace <laughs> culture audits, you know, surveys. What is it? I can think of so many organizations that would benefit instead of doing a SWOT analysis on programs and operations as part of the strategic plan. If you're an organization that values your people, then as a board, I mean, we we did this on a board that I serve on. We need to keep on asking ourselves if we want to take care of our people as one of our priorities, what is that going to look like? Mm -hmm. And we have to ask them. We have to ask them and and change change the workplace to better suit their needs so that 
we can end this hamster wheel and this fatigue and this burnout. Mm-hmm. So if we, we were going to end this conversation right now, what would be left unsaid? I think I think we, we, we talked about a lot of things, Kimberly. I think that what's left unsaid, I just, I guess it's more of a warning that I feel like if, and this is for all organizations, but in particularly my fellow social impact, you know, organizations, it, you're just going, it's going to happen anyways. And you're going to be very, you're going to feel like you've been surprised by it, that where are all our team members? Why is our, our organization losing all the great staff? Why are we not able to fulfill our mission? Mm-hmm. This this change is happening and you can either choose to ignore it and be then feel like you're taken by surprise or get out ahead of it. And that's my real thing is like, do something. I think if you feel overwhelmed by this level of change, start somewhere, start paying people for interviews, start changing your hiring process, start sending out an employee engagement survey and seeing what do people really think, an anonymous one. That's the key part here though, right? That that was a key piece. But if you really want that truth, it's out there. You just might not be receiving it because the environment isn't conducive to that, but it's out there. And so you have to decide, is this really important to you? But it's going to happen. I guess that's that's the real key unsaid message. In 10 years, we're going to be sitting down and having the same conversation, and we're going to be seeing it looks very wildly different. And the orgs that are out there talking about four-day work weeks and talking about um, you know, re- reducing hours and, man- and not just giving more vacation, but also actively managing people's workloads that are talking about living wage, those are the orgs that are going to attract the next generation of employees. So take heed <laughs> from this from this and many other sources. Act now, or you're going to be surprised in the future. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for, for this platform to be on a soapbox for a little bit and <laughs> share some of these things that are important to me and, and I think should be important to our to our whole sector. I appreciate you, Rakesh. Thank you so much. It was it was awesome, Kimberly. Always good to chat. Whew, there was so much to think about in that conversation. I really appreciate how Rakesh tackles tough talk topics with such kindness and thoughtfulness and compassion. Well, thank you for spending time here today, folks. Please remember to share this podcast so that we can invite others into the hub. Let's keep building community and connection through candid conversation. Thank you for being here. See you next time.